What's up, builders? Today, I have the founder of Tiny Earth Toys, a subscription-based toy company focused on helping solve the problem of disposable plastic toys that too often end up cluttering our house, piling up in landfills, or floating in the oceans and killing all those cute baby sea turtles. <laughs> Beyond the eco-cred, what's really interesting is their business model, which sends out toy kits for a few months, then brings them in and sends them back out to a new family. If you're a parent of a small child, or you know someone who is, you'll get where this founder is coming from. If you're the parent of a small startup, you'll appreciate the speed with which this company went from idea to real business, with some tips on how you can quickly test the market and start selling too. Before we dive in, if you want to hear more killer startup stories and pro tips on branding and content marketing from amazing guests like Noah Kagan, Jordan Harbinger, Phil Kogan, and brands like Specialized Bikes, Peak Design, Strava, and more, hit subscribe to The Build Cycle on whatever app you're listening to right now. Okay, back to Tiny Earth. It's a startup, and if you stay tuned after our interview, I'll share a few more thoughts on the business model and some of the challenges they'll face. But first, let's hear their story. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another Build Cycle episode. Today, I have Rachel Classy on the show, who is the co-founder and CEO of a very fresh startup called Tiny Earth Toys. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thanks, Tyler. It's great to be here and great to reconnect with you. So you seem to have been making the most of downtime in 2020 by launching a company. Tiny Earth Toys is only a few months old. What, In a nutshell, what is Tiny Earth Toys? Well, Tiny Earth Toys is a subscription toy service that is curated by education experts. And the key part about it that makes it very different from most subscription services is it's returned or exchanged after play. Right, which is, there's a, a lot of questions I think people are going to have about that concept and you know the, the safety of yeah. reusing toys and stuff like that. But, uh, and we'll get to all that. I've got a lot of questions too about like sourcing the products and how you guys manage that. Yeah. But first of all, like, where did the idea come from? Yeah, well, this um, this time is unprecedented and it's it's been a blessing and a curse for our family. So prior to coronavirus, I was working at a really fast growing tech company here in the Triangle, um, B2B SaaS in the sports industry, primarily serving professional and collegiate athletes and really loving what I was doing. But in March, like many families, I uh, really had to reevaluate what care looked like for my two young daughters. And I made the decision to stay home and take some time just to create stability in our own home. And with some added space, you know, uh, our routines were really disrupted here. And with the space to just be a little bit more present in our lives, I was I was noticing some things that were alarming me about how we were consuming. And, and as an environmental lover and somebody who um, cares deeply about you know this earth for a, a lot of reasons, uh, I became increasingly concerned with how we were consuming things. And, and anybody with young kids, you kind of know that um, toys remain in your house for longer than you probably want. There's an unbelievable amount of clutter and, and they have a shelf life of learning and opportunity for kids. And so this idea was kind of batting around in my head for a while. And it wasn't until I started a book exchange with some friends of mine in this community as a way to keep our kids entertained. You know, the libraries were closed. I didn't want to spend a fortune buying a ton of new books for my kids. 
um, we started this neighborhood book exchange where we were exchanging five books every week and, and our kids loved it. And, and I think parents did too. It was just a really interesting way to kind of think about sharing, think about passing things on. And, and, and thus the idea was born. It, it felt like there was such an opportunity to expand the scope and, and impact of, of what that could mean for, for children and families who are looking to decrease their consumption. Yeah, I like that. You know, the funny thing is, I, I've thought this for so many years. It's like, man, I really wish McDonald's would stop putting pl small plastic crappy toys in their Happy Meals <laughs> because those things probably end up in the garbage can within 48 hours in most cases, I would imagine. But they're oh not, my gosh. They're, there's nothing that's of any value to those, you know? Um, like nothing. I know that's crazy. And, and this stat, like I'll just throw one stat at you because it hit me like a punch in the gut, but 90% of toys are plastic. They're played with on average for six months and 80% of toys end up in the landfill. So it's like, I mean, the McDonald's example is, is like cheap plastic. Of course we just throw it away, but I mean, the majority of what we're buying for kids is being thrown away. It's crazy. Yeah, that's gross. So I'm curious because the way you just describe it, it sounds like this idea 100% started in your head and came to become a real business in just this year. Like, or were you thinking about this prior to 2020? And like, has this been building up or did you really, it was just like, oh, boom, light bulb moment. Let's do this. Yeah. You know, I think in little ways, it's been building up for quite a long time. And it, it started for us and how we were passing on the toys that we were being gifted or purchasing ourselves and, and being really intentional about finding homes for the toys that we were done playing with for my older daughter. And, and so I think, you know, it, it started there and, and then it, it increased in urgency for us um, as my second daughter was born. And we were, we were actually gifted a lot of, we were gifted two different types of subscription toys. Um, which are super cool because like the novelty factor, your kid gets this box, they get to unpack it and there's like arts and crafts, they're different toys. Um, but as that starts to stack up in your home, you're like, what do I do with all of these things if I'm getting a monthly subscription? Um, so it, it's been building, but the true idea really didn't hit me until this summer. That's cool. That's super quick. So I, I want to, I've got some questions for you about like how you went so quickly from you know, concept to an actual business. But uh, yeah, you know, like, I think that's, um, I've got two kids, they're older now. And the one toy that has been consistent the entire time is Legos, right? I feel like if you're gonna yes. buy a plastic toy, Legos have a really long shelf life. So I would encourage totally. that for any kid. Cause like I had Legos as a kid and I ended up giving them to my son and he has since probably, uh, whatever the word for 15 times is 15x the amount of Legos that I gifted him and yeah. his, his room's bonkers. But um, yeah, you know, I think that I've seen those, like those little STEM kits or the, you know, like yep. kits. And you're right. It's almost like the, the meal prep kits that people subscribe to. It just comes with so much packaging, not to mention, you know, toys that stuff that's just not interesting after you've done it two or three or four times. And then, um, you know, so the one thing that we've discovered too, though, like my daughter especially has been quite proficient at uh working the system on mercari so there's always that you pass the toys along to somebody else or you can yeah. sell stuff on ebay or craigslist or mercari or facebook mm -hmm. marketplace whatever um this is a little bit different concept where you actually 
return the toys and then you guys clean them up and pass them along to another family or whoever. Um, what's the, like, I'm trying to think, how did that come to be? Because I imagine there's the weirdness factor, much like there was when Airbnb <laughs> first started of, yeah. wait, I'm going to have strangers in my home. And you're like, wait, I'm going to get toys that some other totally strange kid just played with. <laughs> yeah, and potentially put in their mouth, right? right. A lot of um, our target age range is six months and up. And, you know, I have an 18-month-old that still puts everything in her mouth. And so I, I totally get that concern. And I, I get that concern pre-COVID, and I get it even more now. Um, and, and I think it's it's the number one question that we get asked from families, and that's why it's very prominent on our website how we approach cleaning and how we approach cleanliness. But we, we start first with the selection of the toys. And, you know, I thought about that from what I, what I want, something that somebody else may or may not have had. And, um, and I think there's a lot of ways to ensure cleanliness and to take away some of that ick factor. But it starts for us in selecting really, really high quality handcrafted wooden toys, which, you know, very hard surface. These items are not very porous. They're, they're all sealed, usually with a natural sealant like beeswax. Um, and so, you know, when you think of kind of like real ick sticking around, it, it's at the start going to be reduced just by the selection of the types of products. But secondarily, prior to launching, I did uh, an absolute ton of research on disinfecting processes, cleanliness processes, and refurbishment processes because, you know, ideally these toys can live on for a very long time because of the quality of the craftsmanship and wood. Um, and where we landed is selecting a um, cleaning partner and it's Force of Nature. They're one of the few um, disinfectants that's listed on the EPA's list for use uh, disinfecting against SARS-CoV-2, the, the cause of the coronavirus um, virus. So we take it really seriously. Gloved and masked professionals are cleaning these toys prior to allowing them to air dry, be repackaged and shipped back out. Um, we're going to be doing a lot of inspection as toys come back in also on damage and thinking about, you know, how do we pass on damaged toys in the future um, or find a home for them if they can't be refurbished. So I think that the number one thing beyond, you know, the excitement of this, that the, the second thing that hits people is like, well, how are you making sure that not just coronavirus, but like a kid's bits up on a toy I don't want that <laughs> um, and so <laughs> we're thinking we're thinking through that process really deeply and you know long term I'm hoping to find there's there's some really interesting startups down here in the triangle who are doing on-demand cleaning services and we're going to be looking at long term some partnerships to um, kind of increase our capacity as as we scale up with with the cleaning process. That's cool. Okay. So jumping back a little bit to the beginning of this, you know, it's one thing to sit around and talk to your friends like, Hey, you know, this book exchange thing's working. What about toy exchange? <laughs> and then to go from that to an actual, like launching a business, what was that? What was that step? Like what made you leap from, oh, this is a cute idea to, I'm actually going to start this business. Yeah. I think if it were just like a fun idea, it, it may have just died on the vine. But I, I felt this I felt this feeling like if there's something that I can do to contribute to reducing overall consumption, which which you know is the, is the cause of the climate crisis, that, that I had to at least try. And 
it, so it gave a little bit more urgency than other ideas that I've thought of or that my husband and I have batted around over the dinner table. It, it felt like if it had a chance to impact the world more greatly, it, it was worth at least giving some effort to. And so um, it, it didn't start by me ordering a bunch of toys. It started with a wait list on a website that I built. And, you know, there's a ton of services out there, Squarespace, MailChimp, everybody offers a templated website um, system where you can spin up a website overnight, which is what I did. I thought a lot about the value proposition. I thought a lot about what I was hoping this could accomplish. And I, I built a site. I put a, a wait list form on that site because I did not have any inventory. Um, you know, frankly, at that time, I didn't have any wholesale partnerships. I just, I wanted to see were, were people interested in this. And I put up a LinkedIn post and said, hey, I'm, I'm founding this company. This is what we're hoping to accomplish. Join us. And within a couple of weeks, we had 120 families on that wait list. And that for me was, was some validation, not necessarily that there was perfect product market fit, but that there was genuine interest, which led me to take the more significant step of sourcing the toys and ordering my first kit to to really test was this not just something people were interested in, but was this something people were interested in purchasing and changing potentially a habit that they'd established and how they they buy and consume toys. So so it started with a wait list form. Yeah, <laughs> and, I love and it. now 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 we're here with our with our second kit. I love it. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's kind of like that whole four-hour work week method, right? Like, just test it first, and if there's interest, great, go for it. If yeah. not, then no harm, no foul. Um, exactly. So I, I'm uh, curious, though, if we step back in time, you worked at Specialized Bicycles, which is a massive company. You worked for Countercultural, count, sorry, Counterculture Coffee, say that 10 times fast, um, which is a <laughs> fairly well-known roaster. You know, like, we get them... Uh, here in Greensboro, and I think I've seen them in grocery stores all over the place. What did you learn from those two that you're applying here to your business? Yeah, that's a great question. I've thought a lot about that. I um, I spent seven years at Specialized in product and brand, on women's product and brand, and I I think the one thing that will follow me everywhere, no matter where I go, that I learned at Specialized was to be intimately close to the customer and you know this was when I when I started there it was 2006 and this was pre like get to know your customer over social media it just didn't exist yet so get to know your customer meant physically in person understand who your customer is and and I I took that really seriously the, the women's category women's cycling was uh, an underserved segment of the cycling community and one where there was just so much to gain by paying attention to what w women needed in their product. And our CEO, Mike Finyard of, of Specialized, also took it very seriously. He was, he was constantly trying to get people on the product team into retailer shops, working the shop floor, the bike shop floor, or traveling to our subsidiary markets around the world. So I think I traveled to... 15 countries, worked countless bike events, um, and, and really took that seriously. So I would say that that piece around, not just, you know, kind of like in an academic way, study your customer, but sit with them, talk with them, understand them, take them seriously, and really respect them 
is something that that has followed me and and I think will hopefully be the thing that keeps tiny earth alive and it kind of you you start something or I've seen so many people start something because like they're the perfect customer like I would be the customer of tiny earth toys so I have some knowledge of the wants and needs but it, it starts to go beyond you and with cycling I was a I'm a passionate cyclist love racing bikes riding bikes everything about them but at some point it's it's not just me that's being served there's there's people with completely different wants and needs and blind spots that I have so really long-winded way to say that that was formative for my career but that every day day in and day out really thinking about things through the eyes of the customer was one of the best lessons that I could have learned that I got there very cool. Yeah. So do you go out and do, you know, focus groups or so far are you kind of relying on, you know, the interest that you receive from the wait list and then just from talking to your friend circle there in the triangle area? So it started with my friend circle here, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard to be with people physically, obviously. Um, but, you know, now there's all of these tools to do really interesting market research. I, launched a type form survey again put it out to my linkedin network put it asked a few people who are outside of my network to post it and um i have a few hundred people who've responded with priorities that they have in toys concerns that they might have with something like this so i've i've from parents under six i'm, I'm starting to hear a lot um and so i'm doing everything that i can in the time that we're in to aggregate that information and I'm, I'm also going other places uh, other places that have done research and um, work here to see what what are voices saying so whether that's parenting blogs um, I have some people in the academic or at child education community that I've been talking to so I'm, I'm trying to use those same principles but I'm not going to lie it's a lot tougher to do it digitally it's not my intuition to like just put out a survey because you, you so badly want to ask the follow-up questions and dig deeper. Like that whole thing of ask why 10 times, right? Hard to do that in a survey. Yeah. Um, and I imagine yeah, your friends kind of get, get tired of getting that. grilled. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> they do. Yeah. Well, I think I've tapped them out at this point. Yeah. And you know, too, when you're only talking to your little bubble, you run the risk of, you know, just kind of hearing, um, yeah. People are happy for you and they're excited for you, so they might be overly encouraging and not uh, brutally honest like you need, you know, so. Yeah, um, totally. Cool, and then, uh, okay, so you've got a business going and I, I'm sort of curious, the, the story, you know, you've explained it to us here, but for somebody who's not sitting here interviewing you or your friends that you've heard the story a million times, how do you tell that story how do you get new people interested in toys that have you know it's basically used toys that they're paying sort of a premium for yeah totally it's it's funny nowhere on my website do i say this is a toy rental but that's what it is um and and rental can kind of come with some feelings of like ooh, is that nice premium or not but um how, how do how do i get interest well well thus far being a four-month-old company, I, I started within my own network and, and amplified from there. So LinkedIn and social media have been really helpful um, to get that first wait list going. So this, this first kit we launched, it was really limited. Um, the, the point of this early release was for me to 
to truly test um, sensitivity to price and um, willingness to pay. So uh, I bought 14 kits worth of product and sold those out. And what I'll say is that about 75% of those were sold to people that I either know or second degree connection. So, you know, a great test that people are willing to pay, but it, it, it's the trap that you just mentioned. Like these people know me and like me and hopefully, um, <laughs> so are they buying this and supporting me out of that? There's like something about it being a good idea to them or else I don't think they'd part with, you know, a couple hundred dollars to your point. It is a premium price. Um, but what's happening right now, I've, I've just stocked and, um, created inventory for a brand new kit for children six to 12 months. And I'm doing a much broader um, acquisition strategy now. And it, it's really to see if, if on a bigger scale outside of people who know me, is, is this something worth paying for and of interest? And my test right now, and really what I'm hoping to learn is, is there a true demand for this product? Is there product market fit? Because I don't think my friends can tell me that. Um, and so I'm, I'm looking right now Social media has been a vehicle for that, traditional social media advertising, as well as influencer marketing, finding some very influential people in the early childhood community, um, as well as in the parenting community to hopefully see if, if that's going to drive um, interest in sales of this next kit. Yeah, that's cool. So I'm curious how you overcome the higher upfront cost because it's, you know, your kits are like 150 to $200 for uh, you know, I guess up to about a 12 month subscription where I could go and buy a similar kit probably for 20 or 30 bucks. And it's not yeah. that sticker shock, right? How do you, yeah. it, it, have you had to overcome that hurdle or has it just been a non-issue? Thus far, a non-issue, but I, I don't necessarily hear from the people who see the, the price and, and leave. Um, Price is such a tough one, and pricing strategy is a tough one. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and, and you know, thinking about kind of the ratio of what the toys are worth to what you're paying to essentially rent them. And where I turned and where I looked is at some of the premium brands. So this is not I, – I don't believe this is a replacement for a $30 toy at Target or Walmart. Um, th that may exist in people's homes and lives, but I'm guessing this is not going to be an alternative this may be an alternative to parents who are seeking educational toys, who want to trust that what they're buying is helping their kids develop skills um, and maybe be that one investment that they're willing to make in something more premium. So it might not be the, the thing that they're buying 10 of. Um, but I looked at companies like Rent the Runway, um, who, if you don't know, are designer gowns that are rented at a fraction of the retail cost, you know, a gown that's three thousand dollars might be out of reach for somebody like me but i i could afford to rent it for 150 dollars for four days um and and brands increasingly in the children's space like snoo there's this bassinet and tyler this was probably not around when you had kids and it, it actually wasn't around for my two young kids but there's this bassinet that like scientists have proven give people like three additional hours of sleep like i'll pay for that but that bassinet costs i don't know something like two thousand dollars you can rent it now. You only need that bassinet for three months, right? You can rent this thing now for like a couple hundred dollars a month. And, and when they launched, that thing was sold out. So I see this really similar. We're, we're hoping to, to not entertain a child for 20 minutes. We're hoping these toys are something that become a significant part of their life, which 
then leads to potentially a higher willingness to pay for the quality, for the trust that's behind the selection of the types of toys that will lead to skill development and learning. Um, but, it, but it's not the plastic toy that you pick up and it's flashy for five minutes and then, as we talked about earlier, ends up in the trash. Um, right. So definitely a hurdle, but, but we see it a little bit, a little bit differently. Yeah. Well, and you, you should mention you include like play guides and learning guides to, I guess, help the parents sort of get the kids started on it or introduce new ways of playing with yeah. the same set for, you know, the two or three months they're, they have it. Yeah, that's my favorite part of this. It's been collaborating. We have a, a handful of advisors that are all like super incredible in their career, but one of them is this woman who she's been a early childhood educator, Montessori instructor for about 15 years, but she also does something called um, simplicity parenting coaching. There's this movement called simplicity parenting. Uh, there's a book behind it and it's, it's all about kind of reducing clutter and anxiety so that kids can focus and learn. Um, but she's written these play guides that are like, I use this play guide in my house regularly. She, so she wrote this incredible guide. We include it in every kit and it's, it's guidelines for kind of setting the stage for focused learning and development for young children. Um, but also included then is for each toy, there's suggestions about different ways that you can use it for different types of age appropriate skill development. So you might get a ring stacker, like everyone probably who has kids had that like Fisher price, there's rings and they go on a little pole, right? So when you think about it, there's like one way to use that toy. You take the rings off, you put the rings back on. Um, but in reality, there's a lot you can do with something like that. You can help your child practice rolling them across the floor. You can um, sort them by size um, horizontally on the ground. And so our, our play guides help parents understand the different ways you can introduce play or um, help guide in some cases to maximize the learning and development of each toy. Cool. Yeah. So I got a couple more questions on pricing that, um, have you looked at or considered doing as opposed to like that upfront, um, just sort of a, a monthly payment plan type subscription, or is that yeah. just, are you trying to keep it super simple right now? I'm keeping it simple now, but gosh, it's the one thing that like is scratching in my mind that I, I need to do, which is, um, kind of extend beyond the me managing my website to making this like using best practices of e-commerce which is to offer options for payment and you know what you just said whether it's monthly um with you know this is like how every subscription works right if if you buy the year in advance you get a discount um, but offering people that option of monthly so it's it's absolutely something that i hope to and plan to do in the new year cool and then my next question is like i think with the the pricing, it's not so much the product positioning because I think most parents would probably get it, but there's also, you have to take into consideration, I think, the, the luxury of time that a certain level of affluence affords to where they can research this kind of toy and become interested in this sort of toy and then even spend the time with their children to develop their play with this toy, but then also the price, right? Like right now, this is probably catering to a certain type of clientele. What do you think it would take to make this type of thing more mainstream? Yeah, it, you know, I, I think that I think the time is now for something like this, especially as millennials purchasing habits have changed and the willingness to rent has gone up significantly with 
you know, obviously Airbnb and Uber led the way, zip cars led the way. There's there's kind of like this this mainstream movement towards um, kind of this changing paradigm of ownership. Like we don't need to own everything. Um, but I think what can help this a lot is the renewed focus on climate. And I think it's a it's an issue that many people care deeply about. And and yet it's one that is, it's like, what do I do? This is so big. Like, what piece can I play in this this greater conversation around climate change? And um, I, I really hope to be a part of that. I, I hope that this becomes one simple solution that families can can enact in, in their own lives. And, you know, you see it with brands like Patagonia with their worn wear and buying secondhand now, uh, becoming a lot more mainstream and almost in a way trendy. Um, not that I'm trying to build like a trendy brand, but I think that there's a movement happening already. And I'm, I'm hoping to maybe ride some of the wave that's already occurring, but hopefully also just create a niche as it relates to uh, children's products specifically. Yeah, that's cool. And, and speaking of like that rental economy, you're right. It is a growing trend. Is you don't actually sell your products, and I was kind of surprised by that that you don't sell the kits outright. Is there, you know, what's the reason yeah. for not offering that as an option? Yeah, and you know, uh, this is one that I'm a little bit stuck on. So if um, any of your listeners have have feedback or have worked through a problem like this, I'd be I'd be open to that um, feedback, but. The, the second question that I get asked and what my survey has uncovered in, in the market research that I've done is, you know, parents' concern, number one, is cleanliness. Um, what we've presented thus far helps them overcome that concern. But the second concern that a lot of families have is, well, what happens if my child falls in love with a toy? What if it becomes the most beloved toy in our home and, and I have to send it back now? <laughs> um, and I thought long and hard about that. It's... it's um, you know, a different business model to sell products outright. And it, it changes the pricing significantly. These are these are pretty expensive products. You know, some of the products in the kit, you know, we have one set of blocks that are $130 at retail. Um, that's one product out of a kit of eight that you're, you know, you're getting for a, a fraction of that cost. Um, and the more I thought through this and talked to advisors, I, I wanted to be firm about, this not being an ownership platform. And I think that that's where true change lies. And, and if, if I'm being true to what the mission of this business is, which is to build a society of environmental stewards, I think we have to change the way kids think about ownership. And it's not like us pushing it on them, like you don't get to keep the things you love, but it's, it's helping guide them. Kids will tell us all the time, like my kid tells me all the time, no, but I want that, but I want that. And then there's a meltdown and like crying. And then two seconds later, they've forgotten about it, right? And there's this kind of feeling that I have that there's this teaching moment um, that accompanies returning this kit. And I, I hope that doesn't come across as like um, patronizing, like, oh, you should be teaching your kid this. That's not what I believe. But, but for what this business stands for, I, I want that to be a component of, of what this does. And hope that doesn't box me in and someday maybe these will be these products will be sold and and i think at some point maybe some of these products if they're um you know we want to freshen up a kit maybe we will be selling some secondhand products but but i i really want to stick to why this business was founded and 
recommit myself to that those values every time that I get maybe swayed a little bit because I, I think that's where change happens. Yeah, I got to imagine that's a pretty tough one too because like in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I've got two kids and they've got cousins that are younger than them. It's like yeah. just, just in our family, we pass things down and they get, yeah. you know, probably four to six different kids have played with it or, you know, passing around the neighbor kids and stuff. So, you know, and then people sell stuff yeah. online too. Like there's, there's definitely a secondhand market totally. for toys as well and so like for me as a parent looking at this I was like well my kids are two and a half years apart like this would have been two yeah. very expensive subscriptions that I would have gone through but um yeah yeah I don't know I imagine there's a market both ways but uh the other totally. the other thing that kind of surprised me a little bit when I started looking at the products is it looks to me like the kits that you um cycle through are actually made by others. There was like Sabo Company and yeah. Leg Legacy Learning Academy um, Plan Toys and some others. Is is there a reason why you went with existing toys? Was it just a speed the market thing? Or you know, did you not want to have to get into yeah. manufacturing? You know, I, I um, there are some incredible toy manufacturers out there and it, it started by the, the time to manufacture toys would be significant. The operational costs of setting up manufacturing, let alone the design and real thoughtfulness that would need to come from um, the creation of those toys, um, that, that would be a significantly different time horizon and business. So absolutely, first and foremost, it was speed to market. Um, but as I've, as I've kind of gone down this rabbit hole of sourcing, I've been really impressed by some of even the smaller manufacturers of wooden toys domestically and abroad who are making some pretty incredible and thoughtful, thoughtful toys. So, um, you know, as it stands today, we are sourcing, we are sourcing these toys from manufacturers, other manufacturers, but um, I'd love to leave it open in the future. If there's something that, that is missing that we can't get our hands on, to um, finding a way to create these toys. And here in North Carolina, it, what's incredible about this space, and I've thought a lot about it, is um, this is like the furniture capital of the country. There are an unbelievable amount of manufacturing facilities down here who are doing um, very incredible handcrafted wooden products. And so it opens the door for that for the future to consider. But, but today, we're really happy with with the partners that we've selected for these first few kits. Right. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, you say it's the furniture manufacturing capital of the US. It used to be one of the furniture manufacturing capitals of the world. So I, yeah. I would think there's a lot of factories that are probably hungry for yep. project work as well, um, which, you know, totally. could be good. The last thing I'm going to ask you about is I was looking through your management team and it's all female. Was that a conscious decision or <laughs> is it just you, those are the people you found that fit the needs? No, it, it wasn't a conscious decision. It, um, all of those relationships began kind of serendipitously. And I would love uh, if there is somebody listening, there is a man <laughs> out there listening with a background in either early childhood development and education or in operations and logistics management, please drop me a line. I am you know, actively thinking about how we build a really diverse team um, across you know, all, all types of diversity. I think the, 
a very important part of building this team and this company is going to be finding voices of parents and non-parents um, with different perspectives to make a really strong leadership team. So the, the three women who are uh, board members today, one was a relationship I had and two were introductions that were made that, I, I mean, I, I, can't, I couldn't have come across three more incredible advisors. So, but if you're out there and you're listening, please drop me a line. Cool. And I'll put your contact info in the show notes, your LinkedIn profile and stuff so people can reach out. Um, what's next? Like, it, it sounds like this was, oh, well, it was, I don't want to say hastily put together, because that sort of has a negative connotation. <laughs> um, it, it does seem like it was very well thought out, but also very quickly. How yeah. far ahead have you thought? Like, where do you see this going? Yeah, I, you know, I, I I've been actually initially there was a lot of speed and now I'm feeling this slowing down and it comes back around to that focus on the customer. So I have kids out in the world and to me the most important thing is making sure that I learn everything that I can from what's happening with these early kits and what I don't want to do is go so quickly that quality is lost or real learning is lost. So the, the next two to three months I think is really it's going to be some slowing down planning for the future and thinking about how to make a more continuous cycle of kits. As you can see from my website, we currently have products from about six months to two years. And I'd, I'd love to see a more complete range that can follow a child from six months to about four years. Um, so there'll be some long-term planning for that. But I, I really hope the next few months are working out every single kink, every piece of feedback that I get from the customers who currently have kits. So our next launch feels really seamless and some of the questions that you highlighted and pointed out are, are areas that I, I, I need to be working on but where where I see this going is I, I hope to see these kits become um, even if they're not in the home of every parent I hope they provide a reference point so that as people are thinking about how they might purchase play with and pass on toys they they see they see the multiple ways that they can accomplish their child's learning um, with their environmental values. So I, I hope it at least is, is something out there that can help provide some motivation, whether it's through purchasing one of these kits in a household or, or just um, inspiration for ways that things can be done differently. Right on. And I know this is still a very young company, but you know, a lot of times when we rush into things and we're super excited about it, I've done this numerous, numerous times over the years is we'll, get going and then realize like, oh man, I wish I would have done that differently. So in the, in the few months that you've been going, has there already been some lessons where you're like, dang, I wish I wouldn't have rushed into that or, oh, I should have done like any little lessons you've learned so far that you yes. are trying to correct now? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. The biggest one where this just like, it makes me just so frustrated with myself is, is just the process of sh shipping and and returning products. So I had this whole process mapped out. I got these beautiful recycled boxes, branded really nice. But what I didn't think about was like the dimensions of the box. And I just, I got a couple of different sizes and how the toys might fit in those boxes and then how they needed to be shipped appropriately. So what I ended up with were a bunch of boxes that got really damaged in shipping um, or a couple that did. And I'm like, come on, Rachel, you should have thought that far ahead. But some of these things, I think, 
you don't learn until you do them. Um, and what I'm learning is, you know, just like custom box sizes. I'm going to, I'm going to pay a little bit more to make sure I have the exact right size for the toys so that they show up, not jostled around, but they show up, you know, really looking nice and being presentable. And so that those boxes also can be used to return the product back to me after, um, the product has been used and played with, um, and plug for another startup out there. There's a company that's doing reusable packaging that we're hoping to partner with in 2021 so that there won't be, you know, even anything that needs to be recycled at the end of that. But, but yeah, the shipping and receiving part of things, I'm like, gosh, I would have loved to have just maybe spent another week and tested this with a friend in California, like ship them something and have them ship it back to me so that I could see everything that had happened before I shipped out kits to my customers. But but we've worked through those challenges and I'm, I'm feeling good about it now, but man, one of those learnings you, I, I didn't want to have to have. Yeah, no, <laughs> but sometimes we need those lessons to force us to think through <laughs> other things better in the future. So awesome. Well, Rachel, thank yeah. you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And we'll have to check in in a couple of years and see how this thing has grown. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Tyler. It was fantastic connecting and uh, really appreciate it. Rachel and I ended up talking for almost half an hour more after I stopped recording. I love talking to founders. It's inspiring and comforting to hear that we're all struggling with the same things, even if our businesses are vastly different. One of the biggest things we agreed on is just how much work it really is and the need to focus on our strengths and delegate the rest. This is a topic I'll cover more detail in another episode. I found out that each toy kit achieves profitability after two rental cycles but those rental cycles are four months each. So as of this episode's publishing date, she has no idea what condition the toys will be in when they're returned because they're all still out in the field on their first round. Assuming they come back fine, the bigger challenge might be how to keep those toys fresh and interesting. How do you keep the parents engaged? How do you keep them excited about the next shipment, especially if they were to move to a monthly or quarterly subscription model versus the current paid in full upfront model? This got me thinking, for Tiny Earth Toys, the parent is the customer, but the child is the end user. So you have to market to the needs and desires of one party while ensuring the actual product meets the needs of an entirely different party. That's key to understand, but I wanna give you two different examples that might be more applicable to your business. First, maybe you're marketing to the end user, but what if you have a retail partner? If your retailer's not sold on your brand, product, or service, they're not gonna push it very hard in their stores. If it's not designed to merchandise well and promote itself, it may not sell through when it's sitting next to your competitor's products on the shelf. Okay, second example. You might be selling a solution for a workforce, maybe like a CRM or internal communications platform like Slack. Maybe the end users will love it, but you have to sell the upper management and procurement team on why it will make them look good to their bosses. They're not concerned about easier messaging. They need to be able to show that they increase productivity, speed to market, or profitability, or some other key metric that their superiors are looking at. For Tiny Earth Toys, she has a lot of different messages she could be using. Sustainability, eco-friendliness, early childhood development, product safety. Each of those appeals to a different audience for different reasons. The key is making sure that they, and you, get the right message to the right person at the right time. Speaking of time, that's all we've got for this episode. Thanks a ton for listening. If you like this, let me know on social. 
I'm at Tyler Benedict on everything, and I love to hear your feedback or ideas about who I should interview next, topics you're interested in, or even just your most burning entrepreneurship questions. Here's hoping you're doing more than toying with success. Until next time, keep building.